we continue in the sermon series on the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and uh, especially the first 11 chapters. Since Adam and Eve brought sin into the world in chapter 3, things have only gotten uglier to the point that last week we read one of the saddest statements in all the Bible. Genesis 6, verse 5, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now God's about to decisively deal with this corruption of the world and His people. And if we're honest, that idea bothers us. But we'll find that there's actually no hope without judgment. If you're able to, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Genesis 6, starting in verse 9, listen carefully. These are God's words. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. Verse 17. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, take the somewhat familiar and the difficult and use it to stir our hearts to worship you as creator as king, but also as judge. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Please be seated. There's a lot that's familiar about Genesis 6, 7, and 8. There's a big boat. There are pairs of animals. There's lots of waters piling up into a flood. And if you walk into a baby's bedroom, the nursery, there's a good chance that you'll find something with this motif cute little animals in pairs and rainbow colors, which comes from Genesis 9, the sign of God's promise. But the cuteness factor misses the darker themes of this cataclysmic event. And these chapters, for that reason, are often a stumbling block to people who don't go to church, but even to folks who come on a regular basis and are professing Christians. There are questions about historical accuracy, questions about um, these details that sometimes defy logic. How did the race... Um, how did the human race get repopulated after this event? And there's also questions about the one thing we all want to know about. How did they deal with all the poop? But ultimately, at the end of the day, the questions that are the biggest are the questions about judgment. Why get rid of almost all living creatures? Especially, fast forwarding, if a fresh start did not change humanity's spiral more deeply into sin. 
We'll start uh, with the problem with judgment. And notice the parenthesis. The problem with judgment. To some, this account is primitive. It's an ancient legend about a God who is upset that his created people aren't following his rules. That's the sense that some people get about this. It's one reason people have a problem with the Bible. But what if there's no judgment at all in response to corruption and wickedness and destruction? Think about Russia invading Ukraine. A man simply claiming another nation as his own to do with as he pleases. Why are both right and left, just in our country, probably worldwide as well, um, for the most part, there are a few allies. Why are both right and left here demanding action, um, sharing in the offense, declaring this to be wrong? Well, people would say it's a basic rights issue. It's common sense. Hold that thought for a minute. Many years ago, uh, our oldest child was in kindergarten and volunteered to take home the class lizard for the summer. We were babysitting. And um, our job was to keep it alive, and its diet was live crickets. Have you done this before? So you go buy live crickets in, in, a, in a bag, and you bring them home, and you drop them through a plastic tube one by one into the terrarium, and then you watch, and you wait until the lizard gets hungry and decides to hunt and then eat its prey. It's gone. One animal swallowing another, claiming it as its right to possess, to take, to consume. You might give an ew, but you don't morally object to what goes, in, uh, goes on in that aquarium or terrarium. You don't morally object to what goes on every minute, every second in the ocean and in the jungle and sometimes in your neighborhood when a fox finds a mouse or a chipmunk and has a dinner, you don't morally object. Why? Because we would say it's just nature taking its course. I don't want to see it, but there's nothing wrong with it, we would say. But if you believe that human beings are merely advanced animals, the product of random mutations over an incredibly long period of time, at what point did the strong eating the weak, the fasts taking possession of the slow, the bigger dominating the smaller, at what point did that turn from, that's nature, to what kind of a monster invades another country and eats it for lunch? You say, well, they're, they're not equivalent. There's, there's nothing remotely close to uh, those two, and I would agree with you. Why do we treat those things so differently because part of the answer would be because human beings uniquely are created in the image of God. And that includes a God-designed value of justice planted in each of us. We intuitively know this. It comes out as common sense, basic human rights. The animal kingdom food chain is God-designed. Nothing wrong with that. A lizard having a cricket for lunch. The invasion of Ukraine by Putin 
On the other hand, the violation of human rights is not God-designed. We'd easily affirm these things. It offends justice. So nations have responded with sanctions, UN resolutions, supply of arms, but that's not slowing down the Russian engine. Ultimately, bad people will continue to do bad things to innocent other people. One official count says that about 600 Ukrainian civilians have been killed so far in the battle. Others would say, not even close. It's at least five times that. And who actually knows? Because you can't count these things in the chaos of war. But too many sons and daughters, we could easily say, too many neighbors and friends have already been lost and too many more will be lost. Where will justice for these families come from? If you've ever had a a significant wrong done against you, if, if you've ever had violence perpetrated against you or a loved one, wouldn't you be driven to seek justice, to right the wrong? It's easy, if we're honest with ourselves, it's easy for any of us who have never experienced persecution or racism, or a lesser prejudice to criticize whatever justice movements may be out there. It's easy, because we've been immune. It's easy for us who've never had our houses burned down, or all of our land and possessions claimed by a dictator, or our people group targeted for genocide. It's easy to demand diplomacy over armed conflict. What hope is there for the oppressed, for the war-ravaged, for the raped, the murdered, the robbed of future and hope? Unless there is a God who will vindicate his people, who is intent on righting every wrong, who will judge the wicked and free the earth one day of all that is ugly and violent and corrupted. This kind of God is not a God to avoid or to belittle or to dismiss. This is a kind of God to flee to and trust in for justice to come. None of us actually dislikes justice. We all want it. We just don't want it to come on ourselves. Secondly, uh, the reality of self-judgment You say, I still have a problem with God judging people for not following his rules. That's the caricature of the God of Scripture. Verses 11 and 12 reveal something really important and I think helpful to us. These are the key words in these two verses. Corrupt, full of violence, corrupt, had corrupted. Three of the words underlined are the same Hebrew word three times, in two verses, and an appropriate English translation can also be ruin or destroy. Then it shows up a fourth time in the very next verse, verse 13, when God says this, I am surely going to destroy. The English translation difference, corrupt versus destroy, is appropriate. It depends on um, the reference point, the voice, Um, if you're a grammarian, and here's what's going on. 
the people of the earth had become destroyed morally, character-wise. By whom? By themselves. They did it to themselves. We do it to ourselves. They had actively destroyed their ways, end of verse 12. And now, what is God about to do? Simply destroy what had already begun to self-destroy. God's not bringing anything capricious on His whim just because He's, he's upset and offended that people broke His rules. God is about to destroy what had already begun to self-destroy. Same verb, different tenses and, for, uh, and forms. So, so the consequences that God brings upon sin, we call that judgment, naturally result from sin. You wouldn't be surprised if, um, if you chain-smoked two packs a day for 25 years, you wouldn't be surprised that you got lung cancer. Or at least you shouldn't be surprised. It doesn't really make sense for you to say, why, God, would you allow this to happen to me? God would say, you smoked two packs a day for 25 years. Smoking that amount especially naturally results in lung cancer. And sin, the choice of not God, naturally results in self-destruction. God is destroying what had already begun quite competently to self-destroy. So since sin is always a choice to reject God's design for life, reject flourishing, reject relational intimacy and health, when spiritual death, we call that hell, comes upon people who reject Jesus as Savior, then being offended or Dismissing the possibility that a loving God could do such a thing to anyone, neither does that make much sense. Because when you reject Jesus, you absolutely do not want what he offers, and more significantly, you absolutely do not want him. When you reject Jesus, you don't want to be with him. You don't want to receive his love. You don't want to love him back. You, you don't want to, um, you don't value being in the presence of the King and Savior for eternity, let alone delight in Him. I, I believe it's biblically accurate to say that the worst aspect of the suffering of hell is that God's presence is completely withdrawn. Completely withdrawn. For creatures made in his image, designed to be nourished and cherished and sustained by God himself in his presence, that's our design, that's how we've been made, to reject him and to completely lose his presence creates a vacuum of self. Leads to a loveless, dark, lonely, black hole of a being disconnected from everything that is light and life and beauty and belonging and satisfaction, which is what sin naturally leads to, which is actually the choice of sin. 
I'd rather have that, as horrible as it sounds, than God. When you choose sin over God, you destroy self. You bring judgment on self. What hope is there? Here's a heading you've seen before. Thirdly, mercy and judgment. God promises to bring judgment on the earth. The verses are filled with detail about his instruction to Noah to get ready. In the middle of all of this detail, all of a sudden, again, we run into this theme of mercy and judgment. I hope you would say, again? Because this is by my count the fifth time that we've talked about this because it's in the passage since Genesis chapter 3, since sin entered the world, since God had every right to say, I'm done. You had that chance, you failed, and God is sufficient in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He doesn't need us. But time and time again, and again this morning, we find mercy and judgment. Look, verse 17 is ugly. God says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life. Earth will perish. Yikes. But then there's a big transition. Those gospel words we love to talk about, but God. And in this case, God's speaking, and so it comes out like this. But I will establish my covenant with you. Judgment? Yeah, it's coming. It's going to be ugly. But mercy, salvation, life from death, covenant. Verse 18 is the first time in the Bible that this key salvation word shows up. Covenant. God is making a promise to rescue, to not abandon. And so for now, all Noah understands is that this is a promise to physically rescue him and his family and these animals. All right, that's salvation to Noah. That's all he knows at this point. But it's only a hint of what's to come. Think of Noah. Think of what this reminds you of, maybe. Noah, through one man, many will be saved. Through one man, many will be saved. Noah's context. Water will fall from the sky for 40 days and 40 nights and flood the earth. See, that's crazy. Ask the people of Australia, sadly, what three days of rain can do to the land. Ask some friends you may have down in Somerset County, Hillsborough, for example, how one night of Hurricane Ida's rains can flood an entire town. Plus, the waters will rise, but the same water bringing judgment would bring salvation to Noah and his family. It would bury all life, these waters. But the same waters that bury would cause, would lift up Noah and his family and his animals in this big boat and save them. Mercy in judgment. Not mercy and judgment, mercy in judgment. It, it's a paradox. Same waters. Killed and brought life. You know, it was a fresh start for those saved from judgment. They got to live in a new world. 
But fast forward again real quick, sinful humanity would pick up right where it started. It's almost comical when you read chapter 9, God makes this, you know, God gives this wonderful speech and promises to never again do this. And we know time elapses, but the very first thing we are told about life off the boat is that Noah gets totally wasted and brings down a curse on his youngest son. No chapter break, no, no happy story in between. That's the first thing we're told about Noah. Humanity picks up right where it left off. Don't treat Noah as this um, um, more than um, a, a, a good man who obeyed God. He's flawed. What hope is there? God, in Genesis 9, will promise to never again do this to the world. And you might ask, so why do it in the first place? Well, we already said one reason is God destroyed what had already been self-destroyed. There shouldn't be any surprise just on that note. But also, because the flood points forward to the ultimate solution to the brokenness and corruption and destruction of the world. The flood points forward to something that is both more destructive and more effective in salvation. There's that paradox again. How's that possible? More destructive and more effective in salvation. Mercy and judgment. Thousands of years later, that idea will describe the climactic moment in all of God's eternal plan to rescue his people, now body and soul. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, he's talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, talking about Jesus, the many will be made righteous. What's the story of Noah? Through one man, many will be saved. He's pointing forward to Jesus. He believed God at his word, but he points forward to the one who would fulfill every promise of God to rescue and to save. Something greater was coming. The flood could not wash away the the sin and corruption of humanity. Something greater would be needed that would have to involve complete death. In fact, the death of death. And then rebirth. In fact, resurrection from the dead to fully rescue God's people from the self-destroying, self-corrupting effects of sin. God's heart in Genesis chapter 6, we're told, was deeply troubled. He was grieved at the sin of humanity. But God won't merely continue to be deeply, His heart won't merely continue to be deeply troubled. His heart will be broken God the Son's heart will be pierced. Blood will flow. Jesus will allow the floodwaters of sin and death to overcome him. And through faith in that very judgment, you can receive mercy, forgiveness, rescue for eternity. Life from death, salvation from judgment mercy in the judgment. This is the gospel according to Genesis. Let's pray. God,
Show us your holiness, your perfect wisdom, and yes, your love, even in the midst of judgment. Show us Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of your throne, O Father. Lead us to worship him more and more fully in awe, in humility, and to flee to you in your arms that we might receive the greatest gift you've ever offered, your very presence. Be with us now and forever, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.